players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Gadot Teague, Thoughtseize, Swords to Plowshares, and many others, battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode eight of the Eternal Glory Podcast.com. My name is Anurag Das, and I'm here today with Bryant Cook and Wilson Hunter. What to do? Why did you say dot com? That's funny. Is it? Dot com. It's like MTG the Epic Storm.com, right? Like it's one big name. It's not just MTG the Epic Storm. Dot com. Exactly. Um, yeah, so how are you guys doing? Doing pretty well. Happy Monday. How are you? I am exhausted. So just a real life update because we do those. Uh, I'm actually moving to a new apartment this week. And I most certainly did procrastinate the uh, the packing process. And now I've got way too much to pack and way too little time. And I've basically got like a day to pack my entire apartment, including my gigantic like PC setup, which kind of scares me because there's just like so much stuff in here. But yeah, that's... that's you, you moved to like... Two or three months ago, you're just an apartment hopper. Uh, it was more like a year ago, but yeah. The, the, the truth is, is like when I moved to San Diego a year ago, like I didn't uh, really do a good job searching for an apartment, and now I have found a better apartment to live in. So that's where I'm going to be. Wilson, when you were asking why earlier today, now you know. I hope Honey likes the new apartment, and you have the Honey seal of approval. Oh, yeah. We also submitted an application to get a new dog. Um, it's very exciting. Are you serious? Yeah. What, what is the application, what, some sort of rescue adoption thing or something? Yeah, or yeah, what? yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just like whatever their criteria is. For, what kind of dog? Because they're very, like, thorough about making sure the dogs, the dogs get good homes and things like that. So, woohoo! What kind of doggo? Um, what kind of dogs? What's the, it's like, uh, it's a Saluki. It's a Saluki and Australian Shepherd mix. What on earth? Does that creature look like? Very elegant, very graceful. Uh, it, 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 okay, do you know what a greyhound looks like? Yes. Okay, so greyhounds are supposed to be the fastest dogs, uh, just alive. The Saluki, I thought it was a whippet. Is a greyhound? I, I, I don't actually know what a whippet is, but a Saluki is like the the marathon runner of dogs. So it's got a very similar like body structure. But anyways, we digress. Wilson, how are you doing, Bryant? Can we just talk about dogs? What's up? Why can't we just talk about dogs? Well, I mean, yeah, we can. I'm down. You know more than anyone else. I'm down. Wilson has a dog that he never talks about. There, there are two types of uh, texturing for the skin of a Saluki. Ready? The, the more common kind is like the feathery type with the hair is like a little bit longer. And then you also have the smooth type, which is just like, well, not very feathery, I guess. You could Google the images uh, if you're very, very interested. But, you know. Uh I just found it. So the, the Whippet is actually significantly slower than the Greyhound. You're right. The Greyhound is the fastest dog. It is two miles per hour 
faster than the Saluki's average speed. Yeah, but but the Saluki is built for endurance, not for like short bursts of running. So the more you know. Yeah, the more you know. So it that's actually does look. It looks pretty beautiful. I know. Yeah, they're very good. Oh, they are also one of the oldest breeds of dogs to exist, and I think they're from like Egypt. Their origin. Their or they originate from Egypt or something like that. Their origin is in Egypt. There we go. Neat. Yeah, I'm excited. Mom's especially excited. So. Uh, yeah. So Bryant, what about you? How, what's going on in your life? I heard there's like an event coming up in Syracuse. There is at From the Vault Games in Syracuse, as Anurag mentioned. It's a legacy two to two and a half K. It's July thirteenth, forty dollar entry. In order to hit the extra five hundred, we need to hit fifty players. Unfortunately, last time there's only thirty-five people that showed up for a two K. So it's pretty good value. If you're in the upstate New York area region, it's a pretty easy drive. Syracuse is located on the thruway. And it's actually in the crosshairs between the Thruway and Route 81, so it's pretty easy to get to. It's part of the reason that Star City Games comes here. So if you're in driving distance, it's great value. Come to Syracuse, New York, and hang out with me. I like that Brian is sort of like advertising to donate his money to more competitive players. Uh, cough, cough. Okay, no shade, no shade. Brian's a very good magic player. Oh, that was that was aggressive. That <laughs> so like something I would say. Jeez. Yeah, it is. yeah. yeah. We all got to take turns if you know what I mean. But uh, Wilson, happy belated birthday. How old Thank are you? Thank you now? so much. I I don't know if we are if we have enough episodes to unveil that information yeah i see the show. we gotta wait for that like special subscriber like a uh, giveaway once we hit like 500 dollars in donations we'll reveal wilson's birthday kind of deal i'm down i'm down I, or if we set up a patreon that's like a patreon platinum tier or something <laughs> that's kind of funny um but all right happy belated birthday um Thank i will you. what we have released so far is uh that wilson has three children so Listeners of the cast, why don't you put in the comments how old you think Wilson is? I'm very curious to see what you guys think. Um, but we did make a Twitter thread for Wilson's birthday to celebrate, and uh, we got a lot of valuable feedback. What was the top comment that you enjoyed the, the most, birthday boy? And, and you have to read it with the appropriate accent, too. What's the... <laughs> oh, I, can't, I can't do it. <laughs> I, I can't do it. I'm pretty bad at that. Uh, it also could offend some of our favorite listeners in the world. So the top comment was, I guess what here's the question, and I wasn't part of this at all. I saw this, and uh, yeah. So I think Bryant posed this. What's your favorite thing about our our bald podcaster? Yeah, that's what it says. His <laughs> the top comment, his genuine excitement followed by a gleeful and childlike laugh when Anurag messes something up. That's from Callum Smith. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I am giggly and gleeful very often on this show, given the premises of my glee. I like that. I like that I make you happy, Wilson, and I'll take that. So, Anurag, I was going to ask you, I know that you've also been testing a lot of modern horizons. How have Force of Negation and Prismatic Vista been? They have both been phenomenal. Uh, I mean, obviously testing is in like the preliminary stage, but 
I definitely think Force of Negation and Prismatic Vista will hit Legacy. I don't know exactly how the format will evolve, but I do feel like it, they are easy inclusions in the Miracles shell. So I did notice to that. that this week in uh, the Legacy Challenge results, you were not running Counterbalance, something that I might have mentioned in the last episode. Instead, that's where you were slotting in your two copies of Force of Negation. Yeah, that was a pretty easy one for... Actually, no, the Vendillion clicks were replacing the counterbalance, but whatever, that's not important. I, I do think... I, I thought about it a little bit after you mentioned it, and I was like, hey, you know, maybe Mr. Mr. Cookie has got a point here. Although I will probably revisit the card because I just came up with some new, fresh ideas that you can uh, catch up on on www.twitch.tv. <coughs> oh my God, sorry. I did notice something I really liked and I didn't compliment you on stream because I don't like giving you compliments, but you were running Jeez. a list with four Narset and instead of Snapcasters, you were running, uh, I'm going to blank out that. Briefing? Yeah, Mission Briefings. And I thought that was a smart change based on the, you know, the texture of your list. Yeah. I uh, gotta try everything. Although the blue, blue admission briefing is like very uncastable when you're playing the basic mountain. So I also saw that. I probably wouldn't have been playing the mountain main. Uh, but then, yeah. So, and then there was another card for the epic storm, right? How has Echo of Eons been? So the card itself has opened up a lot of new lines. And even tonight, I played in a local where there was four times in four rounds where I was like, oh, I really wish that Echo was in my sideboard instead of whatever card I was playing because it's not legal yet. So it's been fine. My win rate hasn't been very good recently. Uh, I've been hovering around 50%, but I feel like that's more of a, I don't think a storm is well positioned at the moment. And it doesn't have anything to do with Echo Vans because I've only lost one game that I've resolved it. I've been winning a lot when I cast it, but I'm a little low on storm at the moment. Okay, well, we can get into that later in the episode, but let's just dive in. As always, we start with uh, feedback from the last episode and uh, covering some donations. I'd like to say thank you to, once again, Dick Fisher, who has sent uh, donated uh, for the second time. We've got Daniel Rude, and we have Sage McLaughlin with the $50 donation, that juicy money. Uh, Sage, thank you so much. We're going to throw this money back into making the production better as always as always as always we really really appreciate all support and for anyone else who is interested in uh you know boosting up the next episode of the podcast www.theeternalglorypodcast.com bryant has some sick uh i guess like visual okay implementation whatever it's a beautiful website that's what i'm trying to get at it's a beautiful website and a lot of effort has gone into it would you say thousands of hours millions millions of hours so honestly that's where uh you know all the effort goes into and also here so thank you thank you and uh yeah let's get into the feedback so all right and i'm gonna say the username wrong here but dugs d-o-u-g-e-e-s that's how i say it i say dugs and <laughs> I, I know this uh individual is based out of i think australia right because i they always see them streaming at like like well australian times times but i think that dukes is probably in our top five uh fans of the podcast he comments on everything he replies he listens great dude D doesn't he have like a website like the green sun zenith or something like that we talked about it in one of the episodes we can't mention his website in every single podcast let's skip by that one but it's a really good website so i'm just putting that out there maverick fans and you know night of the reliquary homies anyways so what dukes is saying is <clears throat> I love that insight from Bryant regarding winning through counterbalance being a little easier, not that the mana curve of miracles increasing due to Narset. 
It's an interaction you don't really think of until it's put in front of you. Three slash four wins against Counterbalance and Storm seems very good. And he also makes a comment about how he enjoys this type of insight. So these are like the nuances in Legacy that we, we like talking about. I think... Three out of four. So he's saying that he played against Counterbalance, what, four times? Or you did, Brian. Is that right? Four times? And you won three times? Yeah, after a counterbalance had resolved in the last local that I played in, I won three out of the four times because my opponent kept on revealing higher converted mana cost items. Okay, yeah. I've actually run into that issue as well, so that's why, like you mentioned, Brian, that I had sort of just cut the counterbalances for the for the challenge. Hopefully Force of Negation makes it easier to play counterbalance again. We'll see how that works out. But Isn't that another three, though? Uh, it is another three, but the also like the idea is that you know, you're less reliant on counterbalance having to flip the right card at the right time because you'll have more just like cancels slash force of wills. Love playing cancel. Yeah. Oh my God, can I tell you how excited I am? The cancel mode for force of negation has come up so many times. I have hardcast force of negation at least four, five, six, seven times. And I've also just been flashing it back with Snapcaster Mage. So I'm just like dabbing right now, infinitely left and right. But uh, yeah, that force of negation, mm, it's like A plus, like, like, the high tier restaurants from the Disney movie Ratatouille. So I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah, Dukes was also mentioning like other interactions that you know we we didn't discuss per se, but like we were when we were talking about the new Modern Horizons card, like you know Days and Fiery Islet, like like the the blue red Horizon canopy that we were saying would you know, see play in blue red Delver decks. Um, that's sort of like a weird interaction, although you know the counterpoint is like it also untaps under choke, and you could go on and on and on about all the the cool things. I actually did have an instance in the Legacy Challenge this week where my opponent had double days, but their mana base was Volcanic and Fiery Islet. Ooh. So. Did they end up hard casting one of the dazes and then bouncing the island? They they died. They died? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I didn't win a whole lot, but I won that one. Okay. I'm sorry, but I'm not really sorry, but like... Delver has just been kicking my ass lately, okay? Blue-red Delver specifically. So hearing hearing that the deck is not... I mean, hearing that it's... Whatever. I Maybe I maybe I uh, it's bad manners to be happy that a deck is losing, but uh, I'm happy, okay? Let me have this moment. Um, but yeah, it looks like... So the next... The next I would like to read this one. Go for it. More Wilson metaphors, please! From Not a Prisoner on Reddit. What is this in the show notes? So the listeners out there, we have these show notes, and there's a lot of spicy little, fun little trolls scattered throughout. Because I somebody here, I don't know if it was Bryant this time, gets gets bored, and uh, it's it's fun to come across these things. It's sort of like the Where's Waldo of recording a podcast. Yeah, we keep we keep each other on our toes. Is that but I do. Correct? We keep we wait a second. I'm trying to envision that we keep each other on our on each other's toes. Like oh, I, that 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 sounds a lot better. Well, no, I'm just, no, 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 I'm not trying to make it sound. I'm just trying to envision. Like, am I am I keeping you? I don't know. Trying to physically envision what that would. It be. It sounds a little clunkier, like my miracles deck, but uh, that's neither here nor <laughs> there. Jeez, dude, you can't give yourself zingers like that. But I do have to say, I appreciate this comment. It's it's honestly, I probably put the most preparation work into coming up with metaphors, like out of everything that it takes to do a podcast. And I'm ne- I'm never sure if people 
if it affects anybody, you know, because you never know. I mean, people comment on your magic content. They comment on your pinball content. And I just really appreciate this. So thank you. Actually, we were supposed to record last night, but Wilson was like just like super, super stressed out because he wasn't ready with his metaphors for this episode. So I'm just going to like dial it up to 11 and raise your expectations. Wilson is ready to perform today. So um, anyways, next uh, next piece of feedback is from Perry and Riposte. I'm on the other side of the last episode debate. This is regarding episode six. I really enjoyed the branching out and found the content interesting. It wouldn't have been content that I would have gone out of my way to listen to, but since it was from you guys, aww, and came across my desk, I got the content that I probably wouldn't have gotten normally. I enjoyed this podcast all around. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much. That's sweet that you you enjoy us for who we are. Uh, that means that I, I, I feel like I could ramble a little bit more, more often, you know what I mean? Uh, but is it Perry Andre post? No, it's like Perry and Riposte. Like, like it's a fencing thing. I don't know. Well, I, I just okay. Look, in League of Legends, there's a character. Her name is Fe- uh, Fiora, and she's got like some moves, and one of them is Riposte, and so that's why we can ask Jarvis. Jarvis is a is a fencing scholar. You think that would be different capitalization then, rather than just the P up front? Or it could have just been like an iPhone, like auto capitalizing. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, who knows? Isn't Riposte, isn't that spelled differently? Riposte is spelled R-I. I I just thought it was repost because we're on, we're on Reddit and people repost things, but I don't know. Okay. Maybe, maybe I, like, I tried to be too cool and now I'm sinking in this ship. We're losing our customer confidence. Thanks, Honor. And Wilson is just gleefully smiling right now. No, no, I really have no idea. (laughs) I I don't know. I'm just, uh, maybe it's, it's both, right? Like it's just a clever handle. That's kind of cool, actually. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Wait, wait, wait. Maybe, maybe that's okay. Yeah, touche, I mean, I, I, touche, I, Perry. Oh, what? Jeez, that was the most clever thing you've done on a rock. That was good. Okay. So the next comment by Ryan, um, aka Burglar Baggins on Twitter. We in the Maverick Group are interested in hearing more about <laughs> Wilson's recent list, and thank you for a most triumphant podcast. You three are a peach. Singular. Interesting. T- together we make we make a singular peach, which I do appreciate. Is this like the peach um, emoji, like you know the the peach emoji, Dad? Let's uh, keep it PG thirteen on our arc. Are you hip and savvy, Mister Hunter? You've got three kids. You're you're in the dad zone now. You know what I mean? I don't know if you get all these like references. Goodness. Okay, so let's address this question. To be honest, I turned a little bit pink. I I went back into my chair. I got a little bit you know, nervous about this because these are the Maverick pros asking me who just spent some random time theorizing as I was like juggling an infant and a wild child bouncing off of me and uh, wanted to play some of this new snake in Maverick. So I don't know how to answer this here. I didn't post my list. I I think that we could maybe go into more detail. I have played a decent amount of Maverick in my life, just not a ton recently. Uh, and I did recently update my collection to have enough Maverick cards to play this in an event if I wanted to. But I just can't claim to even really know what I'm talking about at all. Now, I will say that my theoretical lists that I've been brewing include Palace Jailer. One of them included multiple Palace Jailers. And in general, I like to trim down on Stoneforges a little bit. I don't even really know what's standard right now, but I I think Batter Skull is pretty bad in... Maverick 75, just the way that 
sometimes that ends up playing out. So my lists usually have two stone forges max with utility equipment like the Jitte and the, and the sword. Um, sometimes that gives you a couple extra slots. But all that being said, yeah, let me just, I need to, to tune and tweak a little more and maybe get to the point where I can actually test this deck before what I say matters at all. That's fair. I do think testing deck lists out, testing cards out, certainly helps you get a better idea of how good and bad they are, especially in certain matchups. Cough, cough, <clears throat> storm, versus Grixis Delver, Pernicious Deed. Bad reference. Okay, cool. And then lastly... Do you want to do you want to tell the audience what you're talking about? Absolutely not. We're gonna move on. <laughs> right. Okay, we'll save we'll save this one for a for a rainy day. Let's continue. Yeah. All right. So, are we ready to dive into section one? No. There's one more comment. Oh, I'm sorry. I totally missed it. What's the comment? So, Lewis CBR, uh, one of our favorite listeners of the show, left a very long and detailed response on our Reddit thread, and. I just wanted to acknowledge it and say that we appreciate the amount of time that he puts into listening to our show and thinking about our show. And uh, we just, we really appreciate the response on, on the Reddit thread. So um, thank you, Lewis. For real though, everybody listening, uh, your comments mean more to us than you know. We love you all. Okay, awesome, excellent. So the first topic of the day and honestly this one is going to tear the legacy community apart i know it i can tell already we're gonna get so much hate for this well not me because i'm on the right side um <laughs> but section one has been titled dread horde arcanist still sucks wow. i like how still is in here too wow you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I didn't make this this topic. So whoever, whichever one of you two start like wrote this in the notes, take it away. What's your thesis? So this is the brainchild of both myself and our bald friend Wilson Hunter. So one of the things that I keep on getting tagged in on Twitter, or someone will me mention to me in a Facebook thread, is they'll tag me and be like, "Dreadhorde top four this event." Well, did Dreadhorde top four that event, or did the Blue Red Delver Shell top four that event? Because for the last decade, Blue Red Delver decks, you know, sometimes with a splash, sometimes not, have been dominating Legacy. So I can't think of a time period in the last 10 years where Blue Red X Delver hasn't been a viable archetype. And But recently, ever since uh, we voiced our opinion on uh, Dreadheart Arcanist, people have been, you know, a little bit more eager to rub it in our face. But it's a four of in a deck. It's a two mana threat that it is a one three, so it's not exactly fast. And I think it should be compared to Dark Confidant more than anything else. And I don't think Dark Confidant or Dreadhorde Arcanist are really what you want in a tempo strategy. They slow your deck down a lot. They're not really increasing your clock, I guess is the big thing. Like a one three isn't really a threat it's like you're playing a baleful strix in your aggro deck it just doesn't make a lot of sense and in order to play dreadheart arcanist you want to be a more tap out style deck so you want to have cards like thoughtseize but thoughtseize has tension with cards like stifle spell pierce and then cyborg cards like pyroblast and foster storm because you can't hold them open but on top of that, Dreadhorde doesn't even work with those cards. So now you have to change your deck. You have to morph to be this like awkward mid-range deck when Delver decks are best at being tempo decks. So it's a little awkward. Uh, I, I'm just not a fan. Wilson? I agree with everything you're saying, obviously. 
Bryant's always right. No, I'm just kidding. Not always right. But I agree with everything Bryant's saying. And to add to that, let me think about this. So, yeah, there's a lot of, what's the word? People are very excitable over this card in the community right now. I have noticed. And I think that the, I mean, I, I could probably just repeat half the things he said again, but decks win tournaments, decks top eight tournaments. Cards don't do that. Cards are in decks, you know, and sometimes they, they help the deck do well. But I think that's an extremely important point because this card exists in a shell that is efficient and generally competitive in the format. And so it makes sense that the deck is, is doing well with it. The other part that I was gonna I was gonna give this card is that it is very good in a mirror match type of situation. Essentially, the one matchup where you want to slow down as the Delver deck is sometimes the mirror match. Um, card advantage or playing the controlling game can be decent there. But against a huge amount of the format, Delver is is such a good strategy because it's a consistent and disruptive aggressive strategy. And Arcanus just doesn't really do the things that your blue-red aggressive deck really wants to be doing. Like, it's it's doing some okay stuff. But the other problem is, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the Dark Confident comparison is, is really good. And there's really no reason to me why that card is just sees zero play in Legacy, and Dreadhorde Arcanist is considered amazing. The gap, to me, logically has to be smaller for those two things. And maybe maybe Dark Confidant's better than people think it is. But those cards are just so similar that I just don't really understand why they see such a wide disparity of, of, of play, you know? I would like to say, I think that in a year, we will not be seeing Dreadhorde Arcanist in these blue-red Delver decks. I think, given enough time, people will realize that it's not really what they want to be doing. Uh, I mean, it's just the latest fad. Two months ago was Terramander. Uh, uh, I think if you do want to be playing a two-drop in your Delver decks, my recommendation, while not a creature, and it's more of a cyborg card, is Winter Orb. I think Winter Orb is super well-positioned at the moment. Uh, it looks like bigger decks are becoming the trend again. We're seeing a little bit more miracles in the metagame. And recently, I've seen more Grixis control, which died out for a while, but it appears that it's back with Narset. It has another grindy engine. And I think Winter Orb is really good at punishing these decks. It plays well with your cards like Spell Pierce, Days, Wasteland, Stifle. It's good in a tempo strategy. So my recommendation for you tempo pilots out there is... Add a winner orb or two to your sideboard. I think you will see your win percentage go right up. You want to hear something terrifying? I played against winner orb twice in the challenge this past weekend. So I feel like the... And, and both of the players that I played against like performed very well. And I feel like a lot of the uh, Deliver Savants are talking about this a lot more. So uh, the fact that you're echoing this uh, scares me a lot. Because winner orb is a very terrifying card from my perspective. But yeah. Getting to Dreadhorde Arcanist in general, I I just think otherwise. Like, if if I, if I have to be totally honest, right? Like, here let, let, let's paint the picture this way. Going into the Grand Prix, Blue Red Delver was just one of the the decks to beat. It was you know had a very prominent share uh, in the metagame, and then immediately after the Grand Prix, I don't know what happened, but I just stopped seeing the deck everywhere. I don't know if that is synonymous with your data, Brian, um, but. Now, suddenly, I think we're seeing Grixis Delver, or just, you know, Blue-Red X 
Delverdex come back, and I have to imagine that something had to have changed that made the deck from not seeing play to, like, now everybody and their mother is playing it and it's doing well and it's performing well. And I get, Brian, what you're saying when you're saying that, you know, just because it performs well doesn't necessarily mean that it's the card that's doing well, but there's a reason why these Dreadhorde Arcanist decks are in the top eight and, you know, just like the the older Terramander-only decks are not. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like Dreadhorde Arcanist is that special chemical X that is allowing these sort of Delver decks to, to succeed. You you agree that a lot of people are playing this deck, correct? Uh, I'm seeing a lot of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, that's not a trick question. I mean, you just yeah. said that. I just, I don't yeah, no, no, I'm just genuinely thinking about whether I, you know... But yeah, I'm seeing a lot of it, yeah. Right. So my my point would be this isn't a situation where there's a card, not that many people know about it. It's dominating because that that card in that deck continues to do very well with a small number of people playing it. And reality what's happening is blue red delver, which now the stock lists have this card in it generally, is an extremely popular deck. And sometimes those players are doing well, other times they are not, but tons of people are playing them. Now my conclusion would be different than yours, which is why do people play decks? I don't necessarily have as, what, what's the word for this? Hive an opinion of the hive mind, I guess, to be able to, adjust, to, to figure something out that quickly and be able to be correct about it. I think what happens a lot in Magic is, particularly the, this format that we know and love, is that people see stock lists of things or lists that do well, and because there's so many options available, a lot of people will replicate those those cards and it's a little bit slow to adjust a lot of the time so in order for the hive mind mentality on dread dread horde arcanist to have some sort of um be evidence of how great it is i think that we would also have to believe that somehow the community at large is really correct in quickly figuring out that this card is amazing and to me like it just doesn't seem like there's been enough time it seems like opinions and people playing the decks are so dispersed i don't know i just think it seems like the the trendy the trendy tech that currently exists in a very commonly played deck but would what, you, do you have, yeah would you compare that to teferi and miracles yeah i mean i think that this is obviously much more played you know this is a definitely a mainstream choice i think that it is I would argue that it's better than Teferi of Miracles simply because um, of what it does in the deck. Like, you know, I mean, I know we called this It Still Sucks, which is a little bit strong language, but it's a playable creature. You know, like it's doing some things. It's decent in some matchups. Um, it's not an unplayable card. I think Teferi is really narrow and clunky, and there's reasons why we don't see that as widespread. So... Maybe my long answer to your question is I do think it's a it's a little bit better. And that's the other thing is when there's a card that is like doing enough things where it's not terrible all the time, you know, it's hard to sometimes understand the opportunity cost of that. Like what if you were running some sort of army in the can creature, like some hyper-efficient creature that's killing your opponent quickly? You know, those are the kind of things you have to be thinking of. Like what if this card was that in this given moment? Um because I can, I can definitely see situations where it probably plays out fine. Again, I think it's a card you really want in the mirror match. I can see that it 
probably takes over mirrors. I think it's like average in some sort of miracles matchup. But then against the vast majority, the rest of the format, it's just so much worse than any threat you can run, in my opinion. But I've, I've said my, my piece a million times. But Anurag, do you have any response to any of those points? Yeah, I don't know. I Well, I did have... A, like So we, we did compare it to Dark Confidant, so I want to briefly talk about that. Uh, so the first thing is, I, I will say that the fact that it is statted differently uh, is, is a big reason for why the card... It's just not fair to say, like, oh, it should just be Dark Confidant and Dark Confidant do well. Like, a 1-3 is obviously much better than a 2-1 in the format of Legacy when you've got, like, you know, effects like Liliana of Last Hope or, like, you know, Fork Bolt or all the all the minus one effects. Although Is it? Wait a second. I don't know. Can we, can we talk about this? I would rather have a 2-1 in my tempo deck than a 1-3. Yeah, like it's de- it's different. So where I totally agree with you is that we should not be making blanket comparisons. But I do want to clarify that I don't think Brian and I are making blanket comparisons at all. I just think that it, what we're trying to do is is talk about these two mana creatures, which is a lot in Legacy, right? It's it's twice what your most efficient threat is, and they're un- and they're not very powerful. I think just generally you can put that down is they're not a very uh, lot not a lot of damage for a decent amount of mana. And they have card advantage attached to them. So these high-level similarities are there. But I agree with you. Stats make them very different. Where I push back on is, yeah, like Bryant. Bryant just said it. Like, I'd rather be attacking with a Goblin Piker instead of whatever a 1-3 is. Okay. Um, so so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to continue this thought. But also, I, I did say Liliana the Last Hope. And while that does make Red Horde Arcanist a 0, what, 2 or something, so it can't flashback spells, you, you still have to constantly tick up on the arcana so just a random aside i know someone might nitpick on that but i just want to clarify that you know it's still technically a little bit better against that card anyways so the two power versus one power i think is the reason that i think is um not as big a deal is like i honestly feel like the evolution of these delver decks is there's a lot less emphasis on tempo than there used to be um just because of the way like for example the meta shaped out for example when miracles was top dog these delver decks just could not afford to be tempo 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 because you know terminus and top was just so powerful together especially with the counterbalance in play right so i think the delver decks have started to evolve and then you when you had the the death right the death right shaman slash uh young pyromancer era cabal therapy whatnot getaxium probe like even in that sort of situation, you never really had to overcommit because your cards were just so individually powerful, right? So you could really just afford to either A play the tempo game or B grind out later on with your, you know, weenie one two that, you know, somehow had evasion and was just really, really just that broken. Um so anyways, what I'm the point that I'm trying to get at is that these Delver decks are certainly not just tempo, tempo, tempo like they used to be. And for that reason, I think the fact that, you know, this card is a little bit more resilient matters a lot because it gives you a lot more um, stake in the late game uh, or the mid game even, whatever, you know, past turn three, four, five. And also, I want to I point out that Dark Confidant is, you know, it, it does technically give you a, a piece of card advantage, but what it does not give you that Arcanist does is card quality, right? Being able to flashback a Ponder or a Preordain is simply just much better than getting one random card off the top of your deck, right? Because you could get, like, you know, a card that isn't really applicable, like a like a Daze or, like, a Land or something like that. So, to pause you for a quick second, I... Interruption. Uh, so one of the things with Dreadhorde is the card has to be in your graveyard. So I understand that it's nice when you have a Preordain or a Ponder. One thing I found with Dreadhorde is it's not always there. And I know that I play a lot of combo, and that's not exactly fair because people want to hold open their 
uh, cantrips or hold open their mana and they don't want to be casting cantrips because they might die or whatever. But I've had a number of times where my opponent has played a turn two Dreadhorde and they've either just flat out died because they tapped out and it doesn't impact the board. Which, you know, I that doesn't matter when you're comparing it to Dark Confinant, but if that was a one mana threat, you'd still have a mana open. Or uh, they next turn ponder and then they ponder again, but then they don't have anything and now they're just attacking with a 1-3. So it's not always guaranteed card advantage. Yeah, but, like, that's more on the... Like, that's just, like, the Ponder whiffing rather than, like, the Dreadhorde Arcanus whiffing, right? Like, their Ponder is not finding what they want. The nuanced decision, I see what you're... I definitely see what you're saying, but I do think that these decks are somewhat accommodating for that because, like, if you look at Sam Pardee's list, he won the challenge not this week, but the last week. He had 12 cantrips in his blue-red deck. You see Echo Barodin and Medvedev, they also placed very well in this week's challenge. They also had 12 cantrips, right? So that, like, that that's literally more cantrips than, like my deck plays and i thought my deck was the 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 king slash queen of selection you know what i mean and honestly like i'm kind of appalled that i see that but yeah i i think the deck is definitely building itself like obviously it's it's just come out of the the gates right so it's not going to have its like final form um hashtag frieza whatever but it's 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 gonna it's gonna grow evolve and become what it needs to be what's interesting to me though is that more people are erring towards blue red delver rather than grixis delver and it seems like grixis delver has a lot of tools that are just particularly powerful like thoughtsies for example like you mentioned so i'm wondering if that's where people will eventually go to as the as the meta evolves and grows and whatnot um but one thing that i wanted to address and i remember what i forgot was you also get to flashback removal spells with Dreadhorde Arcanus. So airing back to the Dark Confidant comparison, the fact that you get to flashback your Chain Lightning or your Lightning Bolt is insane because that means you're not trying to dig towards a second copy of the card. And I think there's a little bit of a difference between playing uh, two copies of a removal spell, you know, having to draw like your second copy versus having one in the graveyard to flashback. Just, uh, I don't know, that's, that's kind of where my brain space is. Let me know what you think. Well, I think that there's a response to all these things. Like even without coming to a strict conclusion of one being better better than another. I mean, you just gave a situation where you have already cast one removal spell and you want another one. What about the situation where you have not cast a removal spell and you want your first removal spell? You know, Dreadhorde Arcanist is not helping you dig to your first removal spell, right? Like... Mm -hmm. That's that, that's fair, yeah. I, I might take a quick cop-out and say, like, deck construction sort of is designed to mitigate that. Like, I, I'm just very briefly looking at the lists that are doing well recently, and I'm seeing not, not just four copies of Lightning Bolt, but I'm seeing additional copies of Chain Lightning to sort of mitigate the impact of not having, you know, the first copy... Uh, and, and, like, these decks are starting to become extremely Xeroxy, redundant whatever you want to call it, and... Well, they're because yeah, I mean, they're definitely being built around this card. They're becoming more mid-rangey decks, mm -hmm, right? Yeah. And so, you are correct. You will have to build the deck with the card in mind because the card does like there is a fail rate with the card, and you know, just sort of being la di da, like you know, not respecting the fail rate of the card is going to leave you know, leave the blue red delver player with with a bad time. I imagine so. I don't know, but that that probably goes for like every card in every deck and. I want to make two points. Is that okay? I, it resolves. Thank you. Oh, both of both of my points. Okay. Um, so, number one, I think that these decks seem like they're in this mode of trying to beat other fair blue mirrors, and I can understand how that deck is doing a reasonable job of that. I just think at some point when you're playing a diverse legacy meta you start to punish yourself in deck construction for making this 
super cantrippy, ultimately less powerful than Miracle's blue grindy deck, you know? I mean, at some point, if your opportunity cost, if you if you build your deck a certain way to warp around that, that game plan, maybe you're, you don't even look at your opportunity cost as how your slots for Delver. Maybe all of a sudden you're playing in the same space as one of some of these slower blue decks, and you're like, why aren't I just doing a better job at being a blue control deck? Um, and I don't know. I just, I just think I, I'm uncomfortable with these Delver decks that get really heavy on value and happen to have Delver. It's why I've never liked the Stoneblade Delver decks personally. I think they suffer from the same problem as I'm seeing with this. But hey, you're making a lot of good points, Anrug. The one thing I do want to say is tempo. I do totally disagree with your point about Deathrite Shaman. That was that was tempo central because the whole point of Deathrite Shaman is that you are adding mana to the board by playing a threat. So when you daze, you are also still at mana parity and you don't go back on mana from, from casting your, your free counter magic and you have more mana to utilize your hyper-efficient uh, creatures and and removal spells and your cantrips and everything else. I, so, I think the point that I was trying to get across was less so that uh, it was more like tempo wasn't necessarily the only game plan rather than it being one of two very, very powerful game plans. What, the reasonable part of your point is that Delver did start playing things like True Name Nemesis, which certainly uh, plays to that. But my my pushback to the overall point is that that era of Delver was way more tempo focused than this Delver deck that we're talking about right now. Um, I think it's sort of night and day. I think this Delver deck is skewing way more mid-range. I think even the scenarios you're describing where you're winning late game with Deathrite Shaman and everything, that's still like the reach element of a hype, of a fairly efficient tempo strategy, which is what that the Grixis Delver deck in that era did extremely well. And I, I, I personally just feel like this is very different than that. So one counterpoint that I had that I've been waiting to say is Anurag mentioned how the tempo-centric Delver decks kind of flutter out against uh, better mid-range decks or control decks. And I I know I already mentioned it, but Winter Orb solves a lot of that. So you can make your hyper-tempo deck stay hyper-tempo and not flutter out depending on how you build it. And you don't need to try to be something that you're not in order to win those matchups. Because I'm not sure how often Dreadhorde is actually winning you a matchup against Miracles. And we mentioned how they're playing 12 cantrips and how they're trying to draw more cards than Miracles. And I mentioned this... I don't know, six months ago, eight months ago, when Miracle started playing AKs and Predicts, I mentioned how the deck was all air, and I think I did it in an article, but after that, people started playing cards that punish Miracles for just being an air deck, surgicaling AKs and things like that. Not that I think that's a good line, but it did do the job of getting Miracles to quit playing 37 cantrips, because when your deck is all air, it gives your opponents time to punish you in the beginning of the game which maybe it's a little bit easier for Delver to do that due to things like Daze and Stifle. I get, I'm, These decks aren't playing Stifle, so I shouldn't have said that. But you have more soft permission, so Daze, Spell Pierce, things like that, where maybe you're a little bit stronger in the early game, so you can afford to play more cantrips. But I do think at some point it does come at a cost. Yeah. This is a pretty fun topic because judging, doing the, uh, the Breeze test, just putting my finger in the air here, I think that Anrag might get maybe 70% of uh, approval from listeners on this. I think that Bryant and I have the unpopular view. But, uh, hey, I'm, I just, 
I think we're going to speak our minds on this, and I think it'll be interesting to see where this ends up in six months to a year. What I kind of enjoy about this was when we originally wrote this topic down, we said we were going to keep it short, and we're about like 40, 45 minutes into this. So I I think this was a great discussion that we intended to be short, and it just, you know, we went with it. Yeah, I mean, for sure, for people who are listening, again, just post your comments. Uh, this conversation could literally go on and on and on. Like, I've already got points to make in response to what Brian Wilson were saying, but uh, I mean, we, we might just cut it off here just so that we could... Actually, you know what? I'll just briefly mention them, and then... He wants the last word. I do. I do. So, regarding what Wilson is saying, he said, you know, why are you playing Delver then? Just play, like, a more mid-rangey control deck. I just want to point out, uh, Arkin has actually been testing that on Magic Online. He is boasting a very powerful 28-2 and two record. That is ridiculous. Like, I don't think I've seen stats like that. So... Uh, and he's playing just like uh, Dreadhorde Arcanus in like a Grixis control shell. So yeah, I have an important question: Is he buying his fifth round win? Oh no, Arkin Arkin streams literally everything. You can always find what he. Uh, I'm pretty sure everything is just on his Twitch channel, so you could certainly catch that. Uh, I'll I'll leave it there as like a open point for growth, and then. Um, no, 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 let me let, let me let me let me agree with you. That's because this will be a good place to end by agreeing okay, with you. Yeah. I'll, Take it. I will go. I will go back to when we talked about the card as a spoiler. I specifically said that if I played this card, I would want to try it in something like a Grixis Control Shell rather than the Delver Shells it was being played in. Okay. Yep. So full circle. I guess it's good to be consistent, and I like that a lot. Let's take a look then at the sec- second topic. So for viewers, sorry. Oh my god, I, I was really trying hard not to mess that one up. For listeners uh, in the chat, in the chat. Of the cast, look in there's the a, podcast there's a, world. Yeah, of the podcast world, there's a. It's really hard to transition from streaming on Twitch to recording a podcast. All right, this is a uh, the mental tax. So uh, excuse my brain lag, please, pretty please. Uh, earlier, or maybe it was like last week. I don't remember. I was on leaving a legacy with Jerry, who, for some reason, I mean, I guess this is our just like. Uh, weekly bi-weekly jerry jabs can we call it we just had have like a podcast segment called jerry jabs where we just like rip apart jerry for like i'm just kidding no that that uh, i think happened. twitter does that for us cough cough happens on twitter already uh cough, cough. i just made that joke oh well, whatever i'm gonna edit your joke out and keep mine in oh my god <laughs> just joking um no but so on on that episode we did talk about as to somewhat like surface level discussion of the London Mulligan, right? And Jerry was certainly voicing some of his concerns, and you know, I presented some of my points. And I wanted to take time today to sort of just really look a little bit more closely at the London Mulligan. Uh, I don't. I think there's still like a lot left to discuss, and I know we're like an hour in. I'm ready to talk for as long as I want to, you know, or as we need to, to get across my thoughts. Let's uh, let's take it away with uh, maybe our initial takes on the London Mull. And we'll start with you, Brian. Hit me. I am pro London Mulligan. In general, this isn't this has nothing to do with legacy. This is a magic view. I think it creates better gameplay. You have less variance overall where one player might mulligan to five, or one player mulligans to four while in the finals of a pro tour. Just in general, you have less bad beats in it. In certain matchups, bringing bringing this back to legacy, if you know that you're going to need, I don't know, maybe a turn two Thalia in order to win this tough matchup, 
you can achieve your goal at a much better rate so that way you have better back and forth because then the deck that might be favored against you then has to react to you and now you have this back and forth in your games where most of the time if you're just mulliganing for a single card with the current vancouver mulligan you're not super likely to find it i mean you can it's something people do i know that i'm an aggressive mulliganer currently but this will reward people with good mulligan skills in the long run. And I think more skilled pilots will be the, the ones that enjoy the London mulligan a little bit more. And those that are a little bit more lazy, probably not as much, but they have time to adapt to this new mulligan role. That's completely fair. And I like that you're looking at it from the perspective of all of magic rather than just legacy, because I know that is what I am certainly guilty of. I basically only play one deck. I don't play draft. I, well, I, I, I cube sometimes. Okay. You got me. But for the most part, I'm just playing miracles, right? Grinding it day in, day out. And honestly, like my original take for the London, this is my initial take. I was terrified. I was like, it already feels so bad to just, like, be on the receiving end of a turn one Ancient Tomb Chalice or, like, a turn one Unmask and Tomb Reanimate. And I was just like, the only thing that this London Mulligan is going to do is increase the percentage chance of this happening. Why, Watsi, would you, you know, do something this short-sighted? And I was just like, really, like, you know, against it, dejected. I think a lot of people originally sort of sh shared this sentiment um, I didn't really think about it from the perspective. I mean, like, obviously, from 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 the perspective of miracles, I was like, okay, it's kind of cool, you know. Like, I'll I'll open with a terminus. I can put it at the bottom. But certainly, like, the beneficial feeling of the London Mulligan was completely outclassed by the fear of these degenerate decks just becoming way more consistent. Because, like, if you think about it, right? Like, the reason that these degenerate decks are just not like tier zero is because well, they have really really relevant fail rates. The fact that Watsi would implement something to sort of take that away from those decks just didn't make sense to me. I thought it was very unhealthy. Wilson? Okay. So you you didn't give me a, a lot to argue with you about because it was really like it was really your it's your feelings, right? Is sort of what you're saying. You're not really taking a stance. Oh, no, no, no. I, I am taking a stance. I, I did not think the London Mulligan was... My initial take was the London Mulligan was going to be bad for, for Legacy because it just made uh, the turn zero decks way too broken. So, hold on. Yeah, that's your initial take to the London Mulligan as of two months ago. What is your current take? Do you think that is good for Legacy? Because that's what we're discussing today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so two months later... I can't live without the London Mulligan. You you gotta feel me on this one because I'm just like I'm just like I gotta when when, when after the three week trial period I logged into Moto, started a, a game, and it was the Vancouver Mulligan. I conceded and just stopped playing for the rest of the day because I was just like I don't want to do this right now. I'm not ready. So uh, very 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 much a fan of the London Mulligan. Um, I, I mean I could go into my experiences, but I was just like happy that I was like proven wrong. I think. Um, I feel like you just set me up for failure in this discussion. You wanted me to argue with you, and then you were going to say that after I argued with you. Is that correct? Uh, no, no, no. I was honestly like, you wrote something <laughs> in the show notes, and I was trying to set you up for it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, just, oh, you're trying to be nice. Like, yeah, no. Okay, so in the show notes, it says under Wilson's segment, "quote I think the positive effect of the London Mull on broken combo decks is way overstated." So Wilson, tell me what you mean by that. Okay, so that's a specific part of my feeling. 
let me, uh, I was about to make a high level, let me, let me back it down to this statement. So this is going back to the original response that you had and the original community response, which is totally makes sense. I, I understand why I'll say we all immediately go to these combo decks and think that they will benefit the most from the mulligan. But what I witnessed in a different format in modern at the uh, London Mythic Championship, which is where the mulligan was first tried out, is that the fair decks playing relevant hate cards for these broken combo decks in modern benefited tremendously from being able to see more cards in a matchup. And also, the, the interesting thing about this is people had their opponent's deck lists in this tournament, which made it even more interesting. So the, I think the fair decks benefited even more in those scenarios as well. So you saw people, fair decks playing main deck surgicals because they were going to see each other's deck list beforehand and they were able to London mull into potential surgicals. And I think the control decks benefited tremendously. So even though we're not talking about open deck lists for all of Legacy, you can extrapolate to the fact that two-thirds of a three-game match, if you go to game three, is they're going to you're going to generally know what your opponent is playing. And um, I think you can apply some of that there. So, Anurag, your feelings of wanting the London Mulligan from the Miracle standpoint sort of makes sense to me that it played out that way for you because the London Mole, just as a game theory concept, right, it just lets you see more of your deck potentially in over a large sample over a sample size of, of matches and that allows you to generally play more magic if you're making reasonable decisions it lowers the number of games that are decided by variants in terms of uh, card you know just having bad draws and having cards that don't interact well with your opponent and it lets you see more cards that could interact within the rules of the game against what your opponent's doing so i think that's good for the game which sort of goes to bryant's i think general point and also, in, over the, in the big scheme of things, it benefits decks that want to interact in, in ways uh, with their opponent if, they, if they're consistent decks. So, yeah, I mean, that's sort of my general thought on it. Um, let's dive into Anurag. Looks like he has a response here to this. Well, this, is, this may or may not be like a direct response, but I will say that regarding my current stance, I still think there's a little bit of hesitation that I have for the London Mall, and that is mostly related to the point that Okay, so this is... I'm just going to go back to modern, right? Are you familiar with the, the Neoform deck that came up during the, the testing period? Yes. Okay, so this Neoform deck was, like, absurd, right? Uh, I, Brian, are you also familiar with this? I am. Okay, cool. So I think I think the, the biggest issue with this Neoform deck was that it was just a really, 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 really consistent, like an, like a, an absurdly high win percent rate. I cannot stress this enough. Like it was twenty five percent on turn two. Yeah, wait, what was it? it was, I believe the number was twenty five percent on turn two. Okay, so some and that's that's pretty absurd, right? Like one in four games, um, people were picking up the deck with no experience at all, and they were just completely crushing with it. Three weeks later, London Mall goes away, and you know, LSV picks up the deck. It's like, how, how does this work? Is it still good? And he goes like one four in a league or something like that. Like just really really bad. Um, I think. The point that I want to get across, though, is is just this sort of neoform effect is directly related to uh, uh, you know us having the London Mulligan, right? And in terms of legacy, I think there are so many decks that have existed in the in the timeline of legacy that maybe just don't see play now because of either power level or consistency or whatever. That the the 
London Mulligan could dramatically improve. It's just that it's not on anyone's radar because no one has played it in forever. So, like, I, I don't know if people have, like, tested Hypergenesis, for example. Like, that deck seems, like, super scary with the London Mulligan. Maybe not, like, a turn zero win rate, but you get what I'm trying to say here? It's just, like, this Neoform effect could transform a deck that previously had no game in, in the Legacy format to a deck that has all game in the Legacy format. I don't know. Yeah, so th- what I what I was going to say here is that I don't totally disagree with what you're saying. I think that the effect of the London Mole on the deck Neoform and Modern of what you were describing is overstated a bit. I do think it checks all of the boxes of being the exact deck and environment where London Mole plays maximum effect in this situation that the London Mulligan is probably ever going to play. One reason for this is that the brokenness to interactivity level of modern is quite different from legacy in that you are quite rewarded for doing something that is linear and broken to the extent that you should play decks that have a smaller number of combo cards in them which maybe it's more fail situations what was is that the term what's the term you use on rug more fail like a fail rate uh, yeah a fail, yeah. So, yeah, there's there's more of a fail rate in your opening seven in some of these modern decks because the the reward for the brokenness is higher than Legacy. Legacy has a lot of tools available with uh, with interaction with the broken decks. It's why something like Oops All Spells doesn't just run rampant in Legacy and is more of a fringe deck, is because you know we, I mean, just to put it frankly, we have Force of Will and Friends uh, to to keep all of that in check. But also a lot of powerful turn one plays. I mean, Chalice of the Void thing. There's all these different axes of fighting, but it's very very quick and re- really does a good job against the combo decks. So that's sort of my response to you is that, yeah, I, I think that the Neoform example is probably the best that exists in this world of London Mole and how it's affected. I just don't think it's a, necessarily applied to Legacy in the exact same way simply because of the way the format we're dealing with. Now... This leads me into answering your other question, which has somewhere in our show notes, which is which deck, are we talking about this now, which deck is, benefits the most, or is this later? Are you guys cool if I say what I think about that? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so which type of deck benefits the most from London Mulligan? It would be exactly what you're saying. It's a deck that has a high, a high enough fail rate in an opening seven, but somehow is so degenerate that that high fail rate is worth it to, to take the risk on. And those are the decks that benefit the most. I know Bryant mentioned Painter. I'm not sure I agree with Painter. I understand what you're saying. Painter probably benefits more than the average deck uh, with London Mole. I just don't know if I would say the most. I mean, I wasn't saying it was the most either. I was just throwing out a hypothetical deck that could take advantage of it. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's, I agree with you on that because it's two-card combo, right? So that would be probably your thinking there. Um, yeah, I mean, not even two-card combo, but a card like Red Blast could theoretically just be very good inherently like in a certain matchup. So I think that goes back to what you were kind of saying, Wilson, right? Where like uh, you want, or maybe this is like the second type of deck you're talking about where cards that have like just Jundi type, really just like good cards dot deck kind of deal. Yes. That is my initial point with London Mole in general in the format and how it affects it. But if the question is which combo deck could take most advantage of the London Mole, I would think it would be on the formula of high fail rate, 
because it is so broken. And those decks are things like Oops All Spells. And I say Oops All Spells over Belcher, even though I'm not making a judgment on how good Oops All Spells actually is, but it's simply because Belcher is actually a deck that, that you do need uh, a, car, a certain card density to get to the seven mana, or in some cases six mana. Um, so you can't just like turbo mold down to four cards. Um, so yeah, that's just sort of my thought. Maybe, I mean, I think that the black-red reanimator thing is an obvious one that everybody's been saying, but because that deck is already so redundant and hate fights it similarly, even if it is able to increase a little bit more of its turn one and turn twos, that, you know, it. I think that the London Mold doesn't actually make Black Red Reanimator Legacy nearly as broken as Neo, Neoform is in Modern, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the checks and balances of cards like Force of Will, and now, like, in the format, you have, like, Force of Negation as well, so sort of, like, double double downing on the, you can't do, you can't get away with all this, you know, degenerate action sort of mitigates uh, the impacts of... Um, the, the, the London Bowl benefiting all these scary turn zero decks. Uh, one thing I will say, though, and I, and I know this is something that Wilson will... Uh, he, 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 will, he will enjoy this. So I have had a rule in Legacy, the number one rule of Legacy, and this is something that was just crafted together during the era of House Babarag, uh, a.k.a. when Bob and I used to live, live together, right? It's just you never mulligan. Rule number one about Le- Legacy, never mulligan. Um, I have, I, you watch me on Twitch, you see some of the hands I keep, they are really, really suspect, like, like, double Terminus hands, triple Terminus hands sometimes, where I'm just like, oh, I'll draw a brainstorm at some point in time, and then, you know, I die on turn, like, two or three with uh, my four-card hand, but, no, I, all right, I'm, I'm gonna throw this to you guys, do you guys think that I am more likely to mulligan now, or I am less likely to mulligan now? (laughs) <laughs> you're more likely, but that doesn't mean that you're going to enjoy it. Yeah. Well, you're undoubtedly more likely to mulligan now. My my question I posed in the show notes is, yeah, it's really like gauging your your emotions. Yeah. And so can you can you give us a read? There is something just so satisfying about putting a terminus on the bottom of your deck you know what i mean like like i have been drawing these stupid hands in like the last challenge the challenge before and i'm just like i have this stupid terminus in my hand if only it was another card that actually did no i there are actually so many games where i'll like die on like turn seven because i just don't hit that brainstorm and i'm like this terminus that i opened up with has been looming actual factual literal nothing and I just die with it in my hand, or I like I play like a seventh land drop to play a terminus through a daze, and then it gets spell pierced, and I'm just like wah wah, kind of deal. I don't know. I, for one, enjoy mulliganing a little bit more. I am happier to mulligan emotionally. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I those know. are words I never thought that you would use. Exactly. In the so maybe uh, it's tempo negative. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I don't know. That's. Uh, I, I'm a little bit red in the face because it's 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 so strange to me because I mean my decks always are air on the side of like card advantage and it's a big deal for me and you know mulliganing is a card disadvantage cough cough but um, also so is dying with multiple terminus in your hand so because well know. I mean in in old mulligan rules it is absolutely 
I can I can agree that it is very frightening to mull into a six with any number of terminus and no brainstorm. It just feels horrible, you know. So I have three things I would like to say. Ooh, I'm sorry, Anurag. No, no, go, go ahead. Do you, do you want me to drop a beat for you or something? Like, no, I'm good. Uh, so the first thing would be I think Black Red Reanimator is the deck that benefits the most from the London Mulligan. It's a degenerate deck, very similar to Neoform, where you put a Gristlebrand into play, then you just win the game. So when you're able to mulligan down to four cards to achieve your goal, that makes it more worth it to, than most of other decks because the loss of cards doesn't matter once I achieve my goal. So I think Black Red Reanimator is the deck that benefits the most. That said, your opponents can also find their hate, their dedicated hate, a lot more easily but the problem with that is i don't think people are going to be playing ley lines of the void and things like that i think black red reanimator is going to continue to strive in this new world but initially there's probably going to be a little bit more hate than there was before uh the second thing is wilson mentioned belcher being a critical mass deck i think belcher is actually one of the very 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 few cards or very few decks in the format that's going to be able to get away with main deck Echo of Aeons as a three of, and then one in the board. Uh, because you are an LED deck, you don't have any cost restrictions, and you can play the fourth in the board. So you can mulligan to two if you open up Echo of Aeons and an LED. Um, it's just something that these decks now have available to them. So I do think Belcher got a new tool that people aren't talking about. And the final thing is, I think the people that are initially very afraid of the London Mulligan are the same people that were on Reddit saying uh, after 12 hours of spoilers that Echo of Aeons will be the next card banned. If you've played with this card at all, you realize it's not Time Twister, but also I don't even think Time Twister is super good anymore. I know it's been talked about in Facebook chat groups and stuff like that. Like Time Twister is obviously a very powerful card, but in the realm of what's possible in Legacy nowadays the symmetry of it hurts so much and don't get me wrong. I would love to play with time twister, but it's just not as good as people think when gristle brands running rampant and show and tell and so many other degenerate things. It's just another one of them. So I'm going to, I'm going to put a pin on one of the points that you mentioned, uh, specifically with regards to black red. I want to come bring this up later when we talk about <clears throat> slight spoiler, but deck building, uh, with regards to the London Mulligan. That being said, I I, I do like um, some of the feedback that you're that I'm hearing from you. So that's pretty good. Do we want to talk about the next section? I think now that we've talked about our initial impressions of the London Mulligan, I want to talk about like how the London Mulligan affects gameplay. To go a little bit deeper onto that. Go for it. And I think the most intuitive, let's just look at this intuitively, right? Like Wilson, you've mentioned this, and Bryant, you've also given hints about this. It's pretty pretty obvious right the london mulligan overall will decrease variance in magic the gathering compared to the vancouver mulligan and i mean it's just a more generic way to mulligan and this is something that's just like inherent to the london mulligan but one thing that i do want to clarify one thing that separates or one thing just to be aware of is right when i say it decreases variance i mean that it decreases all variance not just the sort of the variance that we you know typically the type of games that we associate with variants is where you like either mull to oblivion or you know you you mull to a hand that doesn't do too much and then you die. Um, I'm also talking about there's there's a good type of variance too. So like I'm mentioning, the bad variance is where you mulligan to oblivion and die. You know, 
uh, you have no lands in your seven, six, or five, then you're at four cards and you can't do anything. The good variance, though, is the type of variance that promotes a uh, that promotes diversity within a game of Magic, right? So, just like a good example of this is like you're playing aggro loam against a delver deck right and it's your turn your turn too and your opponent just played a delver on their first turn you've got abrupt decay in your hand and punishing fire right so there's some sort of like calculation you need to do to decide which spell to cast right and there is variance just in like figuring out like which uh, variety of removal spells you've drawn that you might be likely to draw into and sort of doing the mathematics on that i think that is very healthy decision making is you know, one of the critical aspects of Magic the Gathering and seeing more of it, I think is in general, like I would call that a good thing. But yes, the London Mulligan actually does decrease that sort of good variance because it, I mean, it promotes the idea of mulliganing a lot, right? Because you want to ship away hands that, you know, in a specific matchup may not be good enough. You want to find a very specific, either proactive or reactive plan, depending on what your your, your game plan is in a specific uh, in, in a specific matchup, right? Like, so let's say you're playing, you know, again, let's go back to this aggro loan deck, and let's say you're playing against Delver, and you see a seven card hand that has maybe like uh, like a, a dark confidant and like a mox diamond, but it doesn't have any removal, right? This is like a hand that, and I, I, I don't play aggro loan, so I don't particularly know. Maybe I should have used Miracles as an example. It's not a hand that's necessarily bad, but it's also not necessarily good, right? So with the, the construct of the London Mall, maybe you're incentivized to, sorry, not the, the, the construct of the Vancouver Mall, you're incentivized to, to keep that kind of hand, even though it's not necessarily like the best hand you could possibly have. I think the London Mall means that you would probably be more okay with mulling that kind of average hand. Uh, in favor of something that is just a lot more like linear, just like, you know, a bunch and bunch and bunch of removal. And I don't know, do, do you guys kind of get the idea of what I'm trying to say here? It's just like you're mulling to something that's very, very specific and you're more willing to mulligan to a specific thing because, well, the mulligan is just less punishing over the the course of a game slash match. If I disagree with you now, it will make my previous statements look really dumb. So I think I'm going to agree with you. Okay. I want, I want to make a complimentary point, if that's okay. Yeah. I find it interesting that the British people have had such a major influence on mulligans in the game of Magic. Because we had the London mulligan, and Vancouver is essentially a British city. What about the Paris Well, if you mulligan? think about it, the yeah, the Paris lasted much longer. All right, that's all I wanted to have this conversation. <laughs> but I think I think that you made a lot of good points on our own. Yeah. So so I guess the real question here is well, maybe not the real question, but one question I have is like, is this trade off worth it, right? Because on one hand, and this sort of goes back to what I was saying in, in the Leaving a Legacy episode, right? Jerry is afraid that all these games are gonna just devolve into like the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it's like, is the is the cost worth it? Like, how often are you actually mulling to oblivion versus you know you actually get to play magic? You know, like Bryant was mentioning earlier, like it's a it's a it's a good feeling to mulligan to a six that doesn't you know suck ass. My exact words. <laughs> yeah, my my honest opinion is that I think the trade off is very much worth it. I think the gains in consistency are probably. I, I want to say they don't decrease variance that much. And, and here's here's my reasoning for it. You ready? 
Legacy is a special format because the cards that exist in Legacy are just unique to that format. And I'm specifically talking about being able to play four copies of Brainstorm, four copies of Ponder, right? The Cantrip Cartel, as they're infamously known as. These Xerox strategies do a much, much, much stronger job at reducing vari like good variants in Legacy than anything else. The London Mulligan simply just does not come close to the amount of... Uh, damage that th these cantrips do to uh quote good variants every single game you know you're looking at like a seven or six card hand with a blue deck that has a ponder or a brainstorm that can further sculpt your hand find that piece of removal or that you know that answer to the counter spell or something or sorry the answer to the, to the combo or whatever it might be and i mean it's, it's pretty pretty elementary when you think about why uh, the cantrips do just a much more effective job at decreasing good variance because these cantrips are not restricted to a one-time thing, right? The London Mall is you look at your seven-card hand and only one time at the beginning of the match you are, you know you you can mulligan, right? It's not like on turn six you get to mulligan one more time or whatever it may be. But the cantrip cartel is there to last, right? You go ponder on turn one, ponder on turn two, brainstorm on turn five. It's just there over and over and over again, and. I think the games in Legacy right now, like we're pretty vocal about this where Legacy is just in like a really good state right now, right? Despite having all these cantrips that sort of make games repetitive. I think it's probably okay because there's no one deck that is just like inherently like so overpowered and, and, and busted that, you know, everyone's playing that deck. Brainstorm and Ponder really aren't as strong as they used to be. And if Brainstorm and Ponder aren't even that bad, Really, like, the London Mulligan can't, you know, do that much more damage to suddenly make the format just like playing rock, paper, scissors every single time. I have a confession, and I'm not proud of this. I listened to the Leaving a Legacy episode featuring Anurag Das. Oh, man. <laughs> and there's something in the episode that really, really bothered me. And I'm not going to say who said it, because it doesn't need to be said, but... An individual said, you don't need ponder because you can just mulligan and sculpt your perfect hand. Doesn't matter who said it. Uh, I take issue with this because I don't think they took a step back and thought non-emotionally about how games actually play out. Because if you're sculpting your perfect hand, you're now starting on five cards versus their seven. Or five cards versus their six. And I understand that, hey, it's just a card or just two cards. I want to achieve my strategy. But it is not the same as the Leaving a Legacy episode compared it to already having Ponder and not needing Ponder because you have the London Mulligan. Games are longer than one or two turns on average. And this is coming from the combo guy. So keep in mind, these are long games. And even if you do Mulligan until your, two, your turn to Thalia... That comes at a cost, and your opponents are just as likely to have their disruption for you. And I think it's very important to take a step back and look at it very logically and not let your emotions dictate how you feel about the game. Yeah, no, that's that, that's certainly a good point. I don't think you're going to magically... I mean, obviously, it's going to happen some percent, percentage of the time where, you know, you ship a seven, look at another seven card hand, put one card back and your opponent's just dead on turn one or two. Um, but I, I obviously don't think that happens enough. And I feel like Watsi's got enough data in the bank to, to also, you know, I mean, they're not going to be like, you know, they wouldn't have, by, by the way, for anyone who may not be aware, the London Mulligan is official. It is coming to all sanctioned magic uh, sometime in July. 
I think. And I think Watsi's got enough data to, you know, just be confident in this decision. But but yeah, that's that's that that is certainly a good point. I want to follow up. So now that we have talked about like variance and you know with relation to the London Mulligan, does this mean then that the format will speed up a little bit? De- definitely. Yeah, my take is also yeah. I, I think it I think it does. I think the format definitely speeds up because it, it, it's simple. You just have more card quality in your opening hand than before you get to ship away a seven that may not necessarily you know be in line with your proactive strategy to a six that you know has that show and tell and gristle brand that you can play on turn three i mean obviously again like it's not gonna happen all the time but like you know you're seeing more cards on every mulligan to six every mulligan to five every mulligan to four which means that you can piece together your proactive strategy a lot more of the time why are you assuming proactive strategy so before I get into this, you guys, to clarify, you both think that it's going to speed up the format. Yeah. I finally like that I'm on the opposite stance of Wilson about something because I'm going to fucking crush him. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Wow. That's a big word. It's coming from a test player. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Test, test is great. It's T.S. Clown. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So first thing, you're assuming proactive strategy in... in your thesis here on Arag, correct? I definitely think proactive strategies will become faster. Uh, I kind of also want to say that reactive strategies will also be able to get closer to their lockout plans. I mean, is a blowout game fast or slow? Counter question. Dex playing a turn one Trinosphere. Is that game decided on turn one? Counter question. Is a hot dog a sandwich? According to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yes. Hmm. A resolved Trinosphere, any any lopsided game is more likely to happen without the London Mole, right? I don't agree with that. Why is that? So, sure, the Mulligan games are more likely to happen with uh, the Vancouver Mulligan, but lopsided games... I'd say they're just as likely to happen with the London Mole because you have games where people are more efficient at what they're doing. So uh, if you played at all during the testing period, you would have seen that the Dragon Stompy decks of the time became very focused on Turn 1 Trinosphere. They were playing Chromox and Simeon Spirit Guide, some with even Lotus Petal, with four copies of Trinosphere, which is a little bit more than these decks play. So they had four Trinosphere and 12 Accelerants to pair with their Soul Lands, just to play turn one Trinosphere because they know that they're going to have an easier time winning the game post Trinosphere. So there's more nine games from the prison element. Like, sure, the game's not over on turn one, but it's effectively over. Okay, I'm going to focus in on one part of your statement here. And that is the testing period of the London Mulligan and how people built their decks during this time gives you your conclusion of of what you're saying correct it is a short period granted it was only three weeks but it's an example of a nine game scenario during the london mulligan and i think this is the trend of which will happen because it does change deck construction which is our next topic but you can't look at things through the same lens that's an example of a deck trying to 
Okay, there's two different points here. I will first address that part. That is a deck trying to create a non-game. But the opponent is more likely to be able to interact with that potential non-game than they were able to do before the London Mulligan. Is that, do you agree with that? I do. So that would be a slight counterpoint. But my overall point, and what I wrote here in my little paragraph, is that my theory is that it's not the London Mulligan itself that affects the speed of the format. It is the perception of how the London Mulligan affects people's decks and their deck choices that will affect the speed of the format. That's fancy. Well, how so? It's, you're just like, it's like a very meta thing to say, like, ooh. A little snooty. Well, well no, no, no. It, it's, it's important. I mean, we're on a... I'm allowed to go into this much detail, right? We're on a Dagum Legacy podcast where we talk about this stuff for hours every every week or two. Can you please repeat the uh, the beginning of that sentence? You think he said Dadgum it? Dad blast it. So it's an important point because it's a point that also came up earlier in this episode about Dreadhorde Arcanist, which is we to to sort of think about metagaming. And to understand why things happen in Legacy, it's really about human psychology more than anything else. Because we're not playing against computers. We're not actually playing a game against people that understand the, the London Mulligan even close to perfectly. Many people are on opposite sides of this, right? So to figure out how it affects a metagame, we just have to figure out what people think about it. And eventually, the hive mind plays enough where it shakes out a bit in how it actually affects uh, you know, how good decks are and whatnot. So my theory that I wrote down here is that I think that it will speed up the format initially, given that a lot of people will try things exactly like you're describing, Bryant, where they go more all-in on decks that don't require a large a quantity of cards, or not about card advantage, but instead rely on you know, a certain combination of cards, maybe one powerful card in mana, like you're describing with the Stompy deck, or two cards that create some sort of instant win in, in, in a different type of combo. Um, I, I recognize that that's sort of like the level one that I think about the London Mulligan and how the community probably thinks about it, which makes sense that all of a sudden there's a lot of this sped-up legacy, right? But in the big scheme of things, I think that the London Mulligan actually creates more scenarios for playing the game of magic and i think that once the over emphasis on degenerate combo balances out a bit and people realize like yeah okay my black red reanimator got got better with this mulligan but not that much better i mean it still has all the same issues the black red reanimator had and all these other things once people start to figure i will agree with that point yeah yeah and i, I think that once people sort of figure this out and the metagame just calms down a bit and goes back to what it was a a similar metagame to before with the london mulligan actually creates slower legacy because you're going to have more actual games to be played because there there, you aren't going to have these uh mulligan to five and not have the cards you need because your mulligans to five are actually mulling to seeing seven and hopefully not being mana screwed on your five right so yeah, I think that's, I know it's convoluted. That's my thought on it, is 
the perception right now is going to make it faster. In the long term, I don't necessarily think legacy will, will be a faster format because of it. Uh, that's kind of interesting. I guess <clears throat> maybe the reason that I, I, I could get behind this sort of take on the London Mulligan, uh, specifically with regard specifically with regard to like perception of where the format is, is because this will be like the very first time the format is officially you know endorsed with the London Mulligan. People have no idea, for the most part, what the format's going to look like. And so it's just about what we think and what we theory craft the format to be. But I definitely think like a, maybe like months from now uh, or even years from now, years from now, that uh, there will be actual factual data to sort of describe or, you know, at least give reason to why people will play the way they do, how they mulligan the way they do. This, I know this is somewhat anecdotal, but you really like the London Mulligan and all you've been doing is playing Miracles, right? Like, mm -hmm. and you don't think that you're doing poorly because of it, correct? I don't think it's decreased my win rate. If that's, if that's, okay. If that's, that's incredibly relevant to this whole discussion because you were playing quite possibly one of the slowest decks in the format and you're not doing worse. I mean, again, this is an anecdotal point, but it, it goes to your experience after you know playing a, just a lot of magic in general with this one deck. And I think if you extrapolate that experience that you're having with Miracles, I think a lot of other people are going to begin to have that experience as well. And uh, that's sort of my theory of, of where the, the format ends up. So we've already discussed that the London Mulligan is more beneficial to decks that don't run the King Trip Cartel. And I think that Miracles and other control decks aren't the decks that are gaining the most from the London Mulligan. Would you agree with that? I think so. And the reason that I think so is because if I see like a seven card hand that has like one land and a ponder and like maybe like, you know, some other castable cards, I it's not like I would ship that unless I somehow know game one, you know, what I'm playing against or game two, like the matchup just absolutely necessitates it. So non-control decks would be the decks that gain the most, which means that proactive decks are the decks that really gain the most from the London Mulligan, which leads back to our original point that I disagreed with Wilson on. And I think that's... Decks like Dragon Stompy, Black Red Reanimator, these are the decks that are proactive that are going to get the biggest boost, and therefore they're going to dictate the metagame, at least for the foreseeable future, and that could shake out to be differently. Six months from now, it could slow down, but I think for the initial three to four months, we're going to see the format speed up because there's going to be more decks that benefit from the London Mulligan. I think the one part of this that I disagree with is is how much you or you guys believe that the fast decks or the, the combo decks benefit more than a deck like Miracles. And I think there's some nuances in terms of why I believe that. I think that part of it is the way that a deck like Miracles is constructed. It's not just a card advantage control deck like you would see in, in Standard or something where you, you, you want to hit a five-mana play as well because it draws a bunch of cards. There are these interactive combo elements to the deck that are incredibly affected by which cards you see in your hand. The very obvious one is Terminus in your opener without a brainstorm. Those two cards together have a, a, a huge effect on how the game plays out. So just that specific one is heavily affected by the London Mole. But I think even more importantly than that, you get into these specific answers that you have in these legacy decks that are very, very powerful answers that benefit tremendously from London Bowl. So the, the, probably one of the best ones being Surgical Extraction. 
So this is the hypothetical matchup, right? Let's say Blackwater Animator, which is hypothetically benefiting the most from the London Mole in this matchup against Miracles. What are you, you know, you brought your Miracles deck with two, maybe three, if you decided that there was going to be a lot of Reanimator to the uh, Surgicals in your sideboard for this tournament. All of a sudden, games two and three, I think the London Mole benefits the Miracles deck in that specific matchup. And then you add Force of Negations and Force of Wills uh, to that. I mean, there's there's a small number of cards that you really need to see to feel like you have a fighting shot. And if you do see them and have enough going on after that, you 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 may be able to turn the corner. I just think that the the Miracles player benefits tremendously there. And that's sort of an example of what I'm talking about, how the London Mole isn't something you get in a goldfishing void, which is our temptation to build these hyperlinear turn one decks is we always want to goldfish with the London Mole and think that it's benefiting us so much. The interactive stuff that was really freaking good against our decks, all of a sudden, we're you're definitely going to see more of that. You're going to see more surgicals if you play Black Red Reanimator in the London Mole area. And the question is, is your increased consistency with your combo going to overcompensate and be better than the increased consistency of seeing some sort of some hate in the format? Uh, against you so i will agree that you are more likely to see your interaction which leads to more game planning i am not arguing that so what i am willing to argue is the fact that you mentioned surgical as your example miracles unlike other control decks and other formats doesn't play game ending haymakers so it doesn't play things like rest in peace for example that just completely shuts out red black reanimator will you agree with that it doesn't yeah, play true. these huge haymakers where in modern they might be mulliganing for stony silence or rest in peace that actually crushes or destroys a matchup where miracle still then has to fight back. Can we agree on that? Yeah, that's fair. Well, if you open up a surgical, keep in mind black red is still just as likely to have a chancellor or an unmask, especially if you're mulliganing. So even if your plan to surgical a gristle brand or whatever you're, you're trying to hit does work, Red Black Reanimator is literally built to fight back against Surgical because it's the best graveyard deck at beating Surgical. It's literally like why the deck, I should not say literally like that, but it's why the deck has continued success on Magic Online and is a trophy deck, other than the fact that you can play it very quickly. But it's because it's so good at fighting non-dedicated hate so it loses the cards like leyline of the void or rest in peace like those are the cards that actually beat it and if you're not playing those i'd rather be in the, the red black reanimator side okay regardless of the conclusion i do want to make a quick point I, I i agree and i'm not trying to make the point that surgical is that good it's more so that the turn zero or turn one interaction is so important that there's enough cards in your deck that don't really do very much that you have opportunities to mulligan hands, and if you are seeing more cards when you mulligan and seeing more of that interaction, you have a better shot of winning the game. So I, I totally agree. Surgical isn't this, like, we are mulling all the way down to find the surgical, and that's all we're going to do. I'm going to sort of, like, <clears throat> fluidly, like, transition, because I think we are sort of overlapping into what is the last topic for the night, and that is uh, also with with regard to uh, the London Mall's deck building, right? So... One thing that I, I, I do like, or maybe maybe the conclusion that I, I might ultimately settle on, I don't know if this contradicts what I said earlier, and if it does, I'm sorry, I'm a hypocrite, you got me. Um, that is that <clears throat> Legacy is 
a very efficient format. And I think the way decks are constructed in Legacy are very, very focused on this sort of min-max concept where you try to minimize your opponent's chance at winning the game while maximizing your chance at winning the game, if that makes sense. So it's like very, very tight. That's why you don't get to play, you know, all these very four fun cards, like maybe, for example, Venser, because you just, sometimes you don't actually get to the point where you can, you know, cast that kind of card, or it's like too clunky, or it's like, you know, not, that's why you err on like Surgical Extraction um, over a card like Rest in Peace, because it's just like, it more efficient. It's better at doing what needs to be done. Or right, maybe that's goes back to what Bryant is saying, where it's just like, all right, well, now everyone's playing Surgical Extraction, so the black-red reanimator decks sort of build themselves off of having all these infinite discard spells to uh, interact with the cards that, you know, are very, very, very good against them. For example, Cabal Therapy over, like, you know, Inquisition of Kozilek or Duress or whatever it might be. Um, so this is going to go into the sort of deck-building discussion. How do we think the London Mulligan affects deck building well i know that i'm personally going to shave a land from tes uh combo decks in general they often exist in this weird ebb and flow of i want just enough to do what i need to do and currently a lot of us storm players are playing one more land than we actually need just because the delver decks exist and so many things like that and if i'm able to comfortably mulligan down to six I think I'm able to get away with the land out of my deck. I, I said that a little awkwardly, but you know what I'm trying to say. Okay, that's an interesting take for me. And I know this is going to sound kind of um, interesting, but I play a control deck, right? And uh, con the definition of a control deck, by definition, it has to be controlling something. So my deck would probably, you know, change with the, the meta. And that's kind of a cop-out, but that's just how Miracles always is. With regards to the London Mall in mind, I don't think I would really change anything that dramatically. Like, I would still be playing the same number of lands. I have the Cantrip Cartel to bail me out, you know, if my hands are, like, you know, teetering, tottering between the line. Like, I'm not going to, with a deck like Miracles, right, a very reactive, very grindy deck, I'm not going to look at a seven-card hand and then suddenly be like, eh, London Mall, I can do better. I mean, there are certain exceptions, right? So maybe, like, I will look at a hand that has two lands, no cantrips, and a terminus and be like, I can do better than this. And that's still sort of, like, a very nuance to the deck. But in general, like, my medium or my average hands are going to be good enough. I'm going to try and rather just stick to the old Miracles mantra of building a consistent deck that is, in general, like, the opening sevens are good enough that I can leverage my skill to sort of navigate games to a victory. My point would tie into some stuff that Bryant was talking about in our last discussion when he was bringing up things like Rest in Peace. So I think my deck building, I would tweak sideboards to run cards that are sometimes more narrow than I would otherwise run, but and run one copy of them um, because you are more likely to be able to find these cards in the matchups where they have huge impacts, huge impact than you were before. And sometimes these cards before end up feel it slanting towards being wasted slots because if you don't see them and they're narrow enough, you add those two factors together, then they're just not worth being a sideboard slot. But a specific card here is Containment Priest and Miracles. I think I'm more likely to run that now in my sideboard than I was before. Uh, it's really, to me, the perfect example of a card that benefits from the new mulligan rule. 
But I don't have like a uh, one of these land shaving in a combo deck type of scenarios yet. I haven't played as much as, as these guys, so that's all I got. Yeah, I mean, the, the land shaving thing sounds like a, you have to play TES. You have to play TES to know that it's something that you can afford to do. But I think in, in, in general, like I still want to point out like with this whole min-maxing thing, and I'm going to go into another concept here, um, is that you can't just, there. there is a cost to mulliganing, right? Like at the end of the day, you are down a card. And in, in some situations, you know, decks are designed to mitigate the impact of being down a card by just saying, hey, look, you're dead. You know, haha, it doesn't matter if I have, if you've drawn all the cards in your deck, if you are at zero life, the game's over, you lose. So this, that exception aside, I think there's a very principled attribute of Legacy, and that is that all the cards, or a lot of the played cards in Legacy are very good on like a one-for-one basis. And when I say like a one-for-one, I mean like you have one card and it trades with one resource that your opponent has. A good example is you have play Lightning Bolt, right? It kills Insectile Aberration. It it can kill uh, Dark Confidant. You know, it trades one-for-one with a creature. Yeah, but there's some, but Honor, there's some situations where even if your deck often cares about card advantage, the matchup makes it so that your deck doesn't at all. Because sometimes you can trade one card for winning the game. <laughs> you know? Uh, that just goes back to my Containment Priest point. Like, sure, in Miracles, against a lot of decks, you need you want to be generating card advantage, but you fight on these axes against certain elements of the format where that's just not always the case, in my opinion. Right, and so what I want... I mean, like, I, I also agree with you. Like, for example, during the London Mole, I actually played Containment Priest because I... For the same reason, right? It was just like, you get it in play and you win this matchup that is otherwise very difficult to win because, you know, London Mole makes that the matchup much harder or whatever it might be. Um, but what, I, the, 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 what I'm trying to say is just, like, in general, though, I feel like you can't... Like, in, like let's say, like, let's take, like, a, like a fair blue matchup. Right, you're playing Delver and I'm playing Miracles. I'm not going to mulligan like a completely reasonable hand just because you know for the potential of you know something like super busted. Right, I'd rather just stick to my play this consistent game plan because you know if I'm down a card against Delver, that could come and bite me maybe ten turns into the game where they suddenly have an extra blue card to pitch for to their force will for like a critical terminus or you know example X Y Z. I'm saying that uh, card quantity does matter in certain matchups, and the matchups where card quantity doesn't matter, those are usually closer to exceptions rather than the norm. Like I would even say like a matchup like Miracles vs. Storm, card quantity actually does make a big difference because you know cards like Duress and Thoughtseize are designed at trading one for one. It's just the sort of skew the one-for-one one basis, you know, in their favor because Storm only cares about so many specific cards, that kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, that's a really important point, sort of as we start to wind this down to conclude, is that this mulligan rule should not change generally why you're mulliganing or your, your, your big-picture mulligan strategy. You should not all of a sudden think that you should be aggressively mulling perfectly fine hands in a matchup where, like you said, the number of cards in your hands matters a lot more, like a Delver vs. Miracles matchup. It just doesn't have that large of an impact on the game. This is a, a, a slight new numbers game we have here in, a few different, in, in, in several different scenarios, but mulliganing as a game concept is still working the same. You're going down a card. You just get to see more cards is and, and have be hurt less in, in that way but you're right 
Whoa, I think Anurag should record that caption. I know, just have and, it as uh, my ringtone so I can play it back. Or just like, you know, Alexa, play your right. Wait a second. Oh, God, one sec. Okay, all right. So she had her little <laughs> spiel, her cameo on uh, the Epic Glory podcast. The, ooh. the Epic Glory? Yikes. <laughs> um, no, no, but like... Well, oh my goodness, well, you, you were paid to say that. Is there a lot to unpack here? Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I think the concept of one-for-ones means that you can't just freely mulligan because being down cards is there's still a big cost to that. It also goes back to what you're saying, Wilson, is just that people are going to have their interaction more often than not. And if you, you know, class cannon mulligan down to four cards to have that turn one Gristlebrand and your opponent has the, the interaction, right? You just lose on the spot. So you can't afford to just do it all the time. There is a serious cost to mulliganing. And I think this is this is pretty intuitive. Most people, you know, you know this. Um, I think the London mulligan will mostly be for tweaking those irreparable hands making making when you have to mull it's not as bad that's that's my probably my biggest takeaway from what the london mulligan does and i i think at the end of the day like it, that's pretty intuitive right i'm not going to say anything groundbreaking here but like this is the deep dive into why this is the case i want to talk about one thing though regarding deck construction right so regarding the homogenization of games I don't really feel like this is something that we are going to be... I don't think we have to be worried about this too much. And in, here's my reasoning, right? So yes, we're going to be increasing the consistency of, of certain decks, especially in the world where you have the Cantrip Cartel and the London Mulligan, where you're more likely to see the same cards over and over again. Yes, people will play the same Ponder on turn one hundreds and hundreds of times. But I feel like games are not going to you know get to that autopilot level you know that Jerry mentioned that he was playing um, in a show and tell matchups because that is something you get to capitalize on. You know what I mean? Like it makes the, I actually think it makes the meta more interesting because if people are just going to same make the same plays over and over and over again, well, you best believe that, you know, the people at the, at the, um, the forefront of the format who are, you know, evolving their decks very, very, you know, speedily, they're going to be able to take advantage of that kind of stuff. And so I think that means that legacy actually evolves at a faster rate. People will start playing you know these more exciting one ofs and two ofs like you know containment priest wilson um that i don't know just legacy will will change it's not going to be like a, an easy rock paper scissor format because you know spock is going to enter lizard's going to enter the format and you know we have to deal with all that sort of stuff so i do think that there's something that maybe wasn't discussed on leaving a legacy and it was that show and tell isn't a very um trying to be kind with my words here in in depth deck it wants to achieve one thing and it's cast the card show and tell so i can see why jerry thinks that hey maybe this isn't fun my deck is too good at casting show and tell now and maybe even the same thing can be said for black red reanimator although i think black red reanimator has a couple more decisions uh regarding what, how to put their fatty into play, but do you really do you, do you really think that? I kind of do. I mean, you have faithless looting and tomb, then twelve reanimate effects where sneak and show just has show and tell and sneak attack. Anyway, so uh, you have more lines that way, and like your deck just becomes very good at doing one thing. But if you're playing a deck that isn't just trying to do one thing, 
sure, your deck is still going to become um, more efficient at doing that, doing what it wants to do, but it's not going to be at the same rate, and games are still going to be very interesting. But also, Legacy is a format where you're not going to be playing the same decks over and over and over again. At a 15-round event, you might face the same deck twice. You're not going to face Grixis Delver four times at a GP. Like, and if you do, it's pretty unlucky. But on average, you might face the same deck twice. So even if you are doing the same thing, like mulliganing into a show-and-tell and casting it on turn two, five games in a row, you're doing it against different decks. Yeah, but I think the point was more is that you don't want to match up to suddenly become formulaic, right? Like, you don't want to be like, oh, I'm playing against Rixus Delver, I guess. Haha, I'm just going to play show and tell on turn two. Haha, it either gets there or it doesn't. That kind of thing, you know what I mean? Um, and and I, I respect that as like a, a reasonable fear. I just don't think that people are going to be complacent with that happening over and over again. You know what I mean? Like the Deathrite Shaman games where people would go turn one Deathrite, turn two Pyromancer, like... People got sick of it. They complained, and well, the card got banned. I mean, they're obviously it's not going to be crying for a banning or anything like that. But like you know, decks are allowed to evolve. Decks are allowed to grow and respond to uh, the most prominent threat. Like we talked about this last time, where it's just like in September I was playing AKs and Predicts, and then in October everyone was playing Dredge, and now you know the format is like it's like rotating pretty rapidly. So that part of that rotation, there is just a, an inherent. Uh, you build the cards that will best or give you the best win percentage. And this goes back to the whole min-max thing, right? Like, yes, it, one one thing that I think I saw, the reason Black Red Reanimator didn't completely destroy Legacy during the London Mold beta period was because people were evolving and adapting. Like, playsets of Leyline of the Void were seeing play in almost every single sideboard, even like in Elves. I mean, mostly they were in like Chalice decks, but, you know, people came prepared. They had what they wanted, so... I think that's an exaggeration. I don't know. I, I, I saw it a lot. Did you have four in your sideboard? Silly child. Silly, silly Woo! Bring! Yeah, I, 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 kind of, I, I kind of think the London Mulligan might promote a very healthy evolution of the format uh, where that rewards deck-building creativity. While we wind down, I have a question because we're getting to the end of our show notes. In one year, do you think Russell Brand will pay for the sins of the London Mulligan? Like you banned? Yes. In one year, do you see Russell Couldn't Brand? Could you just said that? Could you just been like, do you think? <laughs> no, he. Are you kidding me? That was the best way of saying anything on this show. Oh, so you that has ever been spoken. So you're you're romantic too, huh, Wilson? I see it. I see. It. Hey, you know what? I take it back. I was wrong. You're right. That was beautiful. I would like that snipped. I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say uh, that's actually what my wife said tonight. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So I'm going to I'm going to say that no, Grizzle Brand will not be banned in one year. Yeah, I'm also going to echo the same. I just don't. Well, I'm just getting a close-up view of Wilson's head right now, and I don't think I've ever seen that before, Mama. Okay, um, no, I, I it's also, not even waxed. I, I I share the same sentiment. I don't think Grizzle Brand is going to tear apart the format again. I just think. People will respond and react. I agree, but we are not the majority, I feel like, based on what I've read on Reddit and some of these forums where people think Russell Brand's going to be banned in two months because of Black Red Reanimator. I think that's a, this is a good point to make as a conclusion to our show because 
my personal thoughts on this is it's very, very cool. Obviously, it changes the game we know and love. It affects it in all the ways we talked about. But err on the side of <laughs> not that assuming that this is not going to do anything insane for Legacy is what I would say. Um, it's just, I just don't think it is. I don't think that it's going to have some insane impact. Like all this, there's so much hyperbole going on right now. Grizzlebrand is going to be banned. All you have to do is mulligan into this turn one combo deck. I mean, I'm granted, I'm not running the statistics here, but I can just, I can tell you that the math does not work out on the number of extra cards that you see in this new mulligan rule doesn't magically allow all of these insane things to suddenly be broken, degenerate, and bannable in the format. You know? I think if anything happens extreme, it is because of people's perception and they made some sort of big switch and they decided to go with that and maybe there's a combo deck that's better than they thought and they stuck with it and the metagame changes a little bit forever because of people's perception. or I, I, don't, I don't know, but statistically, I just don't see it. Okay, I like that. That's kind of like a a healthy, positive bedtime radio segment, just like broadcasting over the news kind of deal. So yeah, I like that. I, I think um, just, again, give it time. That's the most important thing, maybe. And remember, Dreadheart Arcanus sucks. Everyone, thank you for listening, and uh, have a good night.